0: Thank you for joining us on this journey to discover more about the English Riviera UNESCO Global Geopark, one of Earth's extraordinary places. In this series of interviews, our patron, Professor Ian Stewart, explores what it is that makes this geopark so special, from when the rocks around us were formed, to evidence of early humans, and right up to artists and writers who are being inspired by the geopark today.
1: So welcome everyone to the, the latest videocast for the English Riviera UNESCO Global Geopark and, and a lot of our webcasts so far have been really around the, the landscape, the rocks of the geopark but, uh, but today's one is a little bit different because what we're looking at is the inspiration of the rocks and landscape for cultural outlets of, of various sorts and to talk us through those we've got a, a mix of, of of cultural artistic backgrounds that are flourishing on that uh, on the Torbay coast, we've got Christine Jones, who's uh, an artist, a Geopark ambassador artist. We've got Hugh Nan who's a composer, a songwriter, musical director. Of something we'll talk about in a minute, which is the Earth Echoes project a few years ago. Adam Neville, who is a uh, uh, a novel a novelist, a horror novelist, and, and finds his inspiration in the, uh, Torbay. I'd be fascinated about what nooks and crannies he's been looking into. Uh, and then we've got Becky Nuttle, another ambassador artist and involved with Torbay culture. And then finally, uh, Natalie Palin who's a creative director for Torbay's Culture's Great Place. And, um, and so I, I'm going to get to I think where this inspiration for you uh, I, the different outlets come from, but I'd like to take us back a little bit, particularly to to for Hugh and Natalie to the Earth Echoes project, which was my um first um, kind of experience really with the creative outlet of the geopath, being a geologist, I think of them in that scientific technical realm, which was fantastic and Hugh, you were well both of you but Hugh, maybe you could start us off. Uh, tell us a little bit about that Earth Echoes project and the legacy of that.
2: Um, I mean, I think for me, Ian, what happened really was that about five years before that, um, Mel, I think, accidentally asked a group of artists, non-visual artists, to do a um, a geological project walking around the bay, which we did for a week. Um, And and I say non-visual artists because we were storytellers and actors and musicians. And what happened, I think, for Mel in particular was that she realized that you can express and explore geology through non-visual ways so most of the geoparks in the world they have quite a lot of visual artists that represent them but actually what about representing the geology through story or through song or through melody or through um, physical representation and so we've kind of we developed that for quite a long time and then I had the great real pleasure of going with Mel to the Geopark Conference in, in Japan and then in Canada. And when we went to Canada, we took some young people with us um, and we really, we, we really kind of shared how we've been looking at how you can make geology into music. Um, and, and then we were, were awarded the, to host the conference in 2016 here in the Bay. And then we spent um, a whole more than a year developing working with young people a kind of story about our geology our kind of um, the culture that we have as well as um a whole set of global geological elements that are kind of coming out like for instance you know the whole thing about the anthropocene the kind of geological era we're approaching mm-hmm. and what that meant was that we work with mainly young people but actually young people in div- devising the project but also quite a lot of older people in terms of the the choir and the cast, and we ended up with a hundred people taking part in this big project that was we call it a geological opera, but really it was a it was something i don't know it was a symphony <laughs> it had four movements, it had a brass band, it had members of the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, it had young people, it had old people it had kind of everything and um was a very extraordinary little moment in time where we were able to represent this this uh, this space where we live
1: yeah. Natalie, you're nodding though.
3: The the way the, the project evolved was these layers, layers of um, uh, co-producing work with the community composers and Hugh and Mark and and then slowly going on this journey where the the you know physical and script uh, layers mm-hmm. developed. And there have been quite a lot of conversations that I'd been having with people about how they understand the geopark. You know, is it something that feels just too epic, too? enormous in time and space to be able to understand and Earth Echo has really kind of brought it back to human beings and the way that you know we have layers of experience and how we might There was quite a lot of making those comparisons between individuals and communities and then this kind of you know immense kind of story and landscape so it did feel like a really particular journey and I think it was really and it really galvanised people, you know, the, the level of closeness in that company was really quite special. And I think that's been a legacy that's really pulled through in terms of the relationship between the Geopark and performance-based work and connecting with the community, which like now feels kind of even more, you know, it feels really relevant now.
1: Yeah, I remember one of those early. I think it was the very first meeting that I went to with, with uh, Hugh and the team and, and Martin Bell and, and Barbican and they they just kind of sucked everything out of my head about geology. So anyone so wants the, the idea of the, the the landscape and the rocks providing this inspiration for his creative output? Who who wants to pick up the threads of that?
4: I think for me it's slightly the reverse because although I'm an artist and I live on the coast, I think there's always an assumption that we all paint the landscape and we all paint the coast. And I don't paint the no landscape. And I don't paint short, the coast. Short <laughs> But, for me, it's around the place and the environment and, as I was saying before, the cultural heritage and why people settle here. Why do artists like my father, um, authors like Adam, you know, why do we settle here? What it it is about living on this coastline? Mm -hmm. And it's around places and settlements, and because my father was a um, swanocist, he was a potter to begin with, he was um, trained at art school. what brought him here and then ha- the work that he created and how that was influenced by the coast and the images you created for the pottery of re- were really influenced by the coast
2: mm. we were
4: absolute beach children we'd spent all our summer on the on the coast and so although you i don't paint it it's all it's like in my dna i was i was born in brixham i was uh, brought up here um so it, so, it, it's that strong
1: sense of place that
4: it it's a real strong sense like, of place. And in yeah. terms of geology and, and Kent's Cavern and Brixham Cavern and why people settled here and the artifacts they make and then how we evolve, and people mm. like my dad and the art and the artifacts they make. For, for me, that's a really interesting part of living in a geopark.
1: It's interesting, we've done some other programs on that human legacy, that early human story, yeah. but it's that notion of it from right up to the contemporary with those that same human stories. Hugh, um, I think you were want to come in.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to say about that. Um, I mean, one of the things that I've really discovered through my 10-year exploration with Geopark is, you know, because we're, a, we're an urban Geopark, you know, mm. I have felt utterly, utterly um, overjoyed that I've been locked down in this Geopark because it's really extraordinary to be able to you know walk the same kind of six mile walk every day for three months which you know incorporates you know valleys and um woods and the sea and the cliffs and you know housing estates and uh, suburbia and you know and so to be able to kind of be within that and to be able to experience it in different ways so you know one morning um, my partner saw a deer coming right ra- behind um, Pier Point and jumping into the sea and swimming off, you know, which is quite uh-huh. the middle of town. And then that inspired um, a whole set of songs that I did with Rick about, you know, well, maybe the rewilding of the landscape did happen. And so we, we made 12. 12- of little pieces about you know seeing a humpback whale or, so, or a kudu or a, a whole yeah. different set of animals in the bay that kind of take over again because it does feel it did feel as if humans and the relationship with the natural world is so close here that it really felt like it was kind of happening mm. um, and so for me I've really kind of appreciated being in it over the last four months mm.
1: Adam I'm interested in your uh, I mean your take on this because you've got a particular genre of of writing which doesn't necessarily seem to fit snugly into the the particular tourist views of the, uh, the torpe area but tell us, tell us what the connection there is well i mean i
0: i before i moved i've lived here for six years and before i moved here i lived in big cities mm-hmm. london and, and birmingham for about 14 years so when i arrived desperate to get back to the sea. I lived in New Zealand till I was 15. So I lived on a, on a harbour there. Mm. I, I, the kind of the aesthetic of Torbay was almost overwhelming to start with. And it took a few years for it to properly distill where I felt I was able to write about it and capture mm-hmm. it. And I've, I've had a very kind of visceral physical relationship with the bay, I've I've actually swum all of it in stages and I've kayaked it several times and I, I walk it and then up the tile estuaries and and down into South Ham. So gradually I've absorbed this kind of aesthetic of Tor Bay um and South Devon and it started to distill into ideas for stories in my imagination. Um, And what I really kind of grasped at, I suppose, and and, and started to refine into a story was this epochal sense. Um, And, I mean, even the colours of the sky and the different colours and textures and surface conditions in the sea, I just, remote farms, I just absorbed it all. And it started to suggest ideas for stories um I guess kind of my, my last book, The Reddening, is a sort of folk and cosmic horror novel. So with horror for horror to, to to really work and be affecting, it's not just about scaring readers um or viewers if it's a film. You want to get something of a sublime of terror into it. So it, it's about awe, it's about wonder. It's about fear as well. Um, and it's that very sublime quality that that I've kind of extracted from living here and, and, and exploring, being in the water and on the water and walking the coast path kind of continually. Um, and it did develop into this story um, about prehistory, about something sub- super normal, being buried, about a kind of, a legacy of folklore and folk magic, um, the pre-Christian and the prehistoric, all, all of these things I brought into a story. And I, I, the day the penny actually dropped, and I decided to start writing this book, and it was in it was in late two thousand seventeen. I went on the tour in Kent's Cavern, which you know really is a kind of awe-inspiring environment. That you know, you, you can't really comprehend mm. the age of the earth um, when you're in a, a situation like that and where early modern humans had lived with these when they were fourth in the food chain behind scimitar cats and giant hyenas and lions and bears, and they all lived in the same caves together. And there was one point where the guide turns the light out. Yeah. and You're in <laughs> absolute darkness, sensory deprivation, and at one point they play the sound of an African hyena. Okay. And in that cave and in that darkness and that awful kind of bestial sound, this penny just wow. dropped. And I thought, I'm in, I've, I've got my story um, about, a, a you know, a, An ancient supernormal presence that was worshipped as a god by prehistoric people. And there's some continuity in the locale, in the land, with local people that has evolved through folklore, etc. to the present day.
1: It's interesting that because, I mean, for geologists, although we would never admit it, that sense of rocks being a portal back in time. Is an absolutely visceral part of the training of a geologist. So one of the weird things is if a if if any geologists almost around the world, to be honest, but certainly across Europe came down to this area, they would kind of see this these rocks in the same way. They would be transported back 250 million years to particularly they would they be able to imagine that environment. And 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 yet the thing that carries them there is the very familiar objects that everyone else would kind of walk past and So we would never quite get that artistic uh, about it. it, would be very kind of technical, but the sense of time, you know, the enormity of time, and the enormity of kind of scale, you know, the changes in the planet, and I guess that's much of the roots of what then seeps into the, to the creative side, that feeling of connecting back to something bigger and longer. Yeah. You, really is that re- something you re- you've recognized in adam it- yeah i mean it it was just it
0: really opened my imagination because i'd been in kind of urban environments which which lend themselves to the to the gothic or contemporary settings and then to suddenly be here where you get this very real sense of the age of the earth i mean the Mm-hmm. parts of Tor Bay were a uh, desert south of the equator and then <laughs> and then beyond Brixham um, it reminds me of Scotland and the South Island of New Zealand and mm-hmm. just within a few miles the, the you funny. go from the subtropical where it's very soft and lush I mean there's one part I love to kayak from Hope's Nose to Anstey's Cove and I think there's you can't see any buildings and I can almost imagine a kind of prehistoric cry, you know, ringing out from the trees or you would see yeah, yeah. some early settlers. You, you, there are parts where you can look at the bay and places near it. And I wonder if this is what people were looking at 30,000 years ago. Yeah, how, how similar is the topography and the landscape? Um so there are just those moments where I, I'm transported and I can imagine, you know, the earth and the area at, at, at a different time. And that's, you know, that's
1: yeah.
0: very inspiring for, for for writing stories. and
1: all, yeah. all. I wanted to go to Christine, because, Christine, your, your work is very overtly geological I would say uh, um, and, and I get the feeling they had a kind of almost Damascus type conversion to to geology that the scales falling away uh, tell, tell us about that and, your, and how it's influenced your work
5: I think the big thing was being involved with Earth Echoes and making the outfits so we toured the coastline with a geologist who told us the story and, and what to look for and I just found it absolutely fascinating. I, I had absolutely no idea. And um, it, it was just a massive thing for me to to learn all this history. And because I've been in education a long time, I've worked at Brixton College in South Devon, I've always had an inbuilt thing that I want to share. You know, education is a wonderful thing, uh, but you've got to engage. You've got to get people to want to learn Um, and I think that's what I kind of do with my work so I worked mainly with pewter and I developed a way of colouring pewter and a big moment for me was when I actually made a piece that reflected the waves and the movement of the water and the sun and the, the, the dappled sunlight on the water and that was a turning point because I thought I can really use my artwork to get people interested. And and my, the big thing is they come into my studio at Cockington and, and especially foreign visitors. And I just love to tell them things to look for, like the upside down mountain where you can stand on it and, and tell them a little bit of the history. And I like to give them some leaflets, some information so they can actually go off and, and go and, investigate on their own. Um, but my actual work uh, with pictures and jewellery, I try to reflect aspects of the Geo Park. Uh, But it could be all sorts of things. It could be movement, colours, textures, you know. Um, but I think it's more about wanting people to understand how important it is
3: mm-hmm. because,
5: to me, it's it's more than just somewhere beautiful to live it's really really important and the history and the stories behind it all I just want to share that with everyone and and get people interested and that also hopefully gets people wanting to protect the area which is another thing I'm really passionate about
1: it reminds me of the that the tagline I think in Earthquake was was the rock rocks connectors and it was, yes. it was carrying through this from this in, huge geological timescales of hundreds of millions of thousands millions of years through all the way to it, as you were saying Hugh, the Anthropocene, the human age, the modernity coming in and the industrial landscape and and then the as you've alluded to there, Christine, the the perils of the modern exploitation of the world. Climate change and all the rest of it, and and it'd th- be, be nice to move on to the contemporary nature of it all and how people are engaging now with people in place. Uh, Natalie, do you want to talk a little bit about the? There's a whole bunch of stuff going on, really, and mm-hmm. and, and you're involved in most of them. So you could probably tell us some of the key ones, and, and maybe we could draw other people in about how they're engaged in in the now, really.
3: It's it, it's quite interesting in in around the because I think there's so much going on, and it's like a rhizome. You don't always know what's kind of developing and sending out shoots in different places. But some of the work that I was involved in last year was um, we were l- kind of looking at commissioning artists to work. Um, kind of develop new work that was relevant to Torbay and its communities. And so there were quite a lot of invitations going out for artists to apply to, you know, develop new work. And of all of the invitations, the Geopark was the one that people kept coming back to. And so, yeah, it, it it just really fires people's imagination. And from people who who are, you know, who, who've who experienced it in reality, but also who might not be from, from you know, the local area. And it, um, it, I
1: just in that thought though, to what extent? Because is it just a gimmick in a sense of a way of a twist that it's a geopark in other areas on, or is there something much deeper? I mean, I'm getting the sense yeah, that. Yeah, that's
3: a really good question. Actually, I think actually, um, it's funny how people find their way into it. Um, I think for me, I'm re- I'm really captivated by stories. So whether it's the objects in the Quaternary K collections in Tolkien Museum, or whether it's uh, finding out about Kent's Cavern, or whether it's specific stories that we discovered through our Echoes, those are the ways that my imagination kind of grasps something. And I think for most of the pieces of work that I've, I that I've got I've got in my mind from last year that are really related, they they had that thing, they had something that grabs them. So. Um, Sean Harris made this beautiful piece that was kind of trying to bring to life all of the hyenas and scimitar cats and all of the beasts from the case through this kind of like um, reanimation machine, which was basically stop frame animation with this, um, uh, and we blacked out a, a, a church so that it kind of, you went in, it was experienced in really particular way. And for him, the stories of, um what he would call the cave hunters and pengelly and all of his contemporaries and that that's the thing that really captured his imagination and and for him he's particularly interested in how that story of the ark and all the way through pulls through to where we are now in terms of rising sea levels and so he's really looking at kind of time in that kind of long way in terms of maybe the way that for us as humans we're reflecting on you know our place in that time. and then something like the olympic cinema piece which were um, really large scale projections on on um, on rock walk which kind of were in three chapters and they were telling this they were again trying to tell a story of kind of our relationship with our past and what humans might leave in the geology and mm-hmm. uh, future and that which had been quite influenced again through uh, echoes and them having seen some of the process work from that and so those stories feel really important. And actually, again, that felt like it was really sitting with the reality of now and climate change and how people are thinking about their custodianship of their, in their small way, you know.
1: There's a kind of parallel going on in the science, actually, because geology as a science for years and decades has always been the inferior science. You know, it's always looked up to physics and chemistry as proper science, where it meant something you get numbers and all rest. Mm-hmm. We would scurry around trying to be proper scientists and things like that and feel really inferior. And yet, um, one of the things that, that differentiates geology is a, it's a historical science. And the adage is, you know, the Earth is a, an experiment that was, that was run once and lasted four and a half billion years. And that notion of, Called big history, as the historians call it of cosmic history of we're connected from the you know the present day all the way back to the birth of the you know our sun essentially and the birth of the solar system. And that the the, the reason that, that I thought was interesting is that has done very well on television and I think it's because it's got that sense of narrative and sense of time to it. Archaeology does history does very well, archaeology does very well, geology as well cosmology, you know, that deep, deep time. Whereas straight physics normal physics that's not cosmology and chemistry doesn't and that and and the thing that's coming through here is narrative i think and story even if it's most explicitly i guess with adam but i mean even in the art it's ways of telling stories is, is that what people feel if you like is the one of the inspirations the sense of this this uh connection to deeper stories oh, i think so. oh sorry I, I'm
5: sorry
1: um do go chris i'll bring you in later
5: one of the things that really inspired me was the stories. And if you go to Paynton beaches and you can see from when it was a desert and you've got like um, pebbles in layers and yep. the story of how the it was a desert and then flash floods would wash everything mm. away. And then you get these build up of pebbles. And this is the sort of narrative that you can actually go down to the beaches and see. And for me, that's what it's all about. You can read about things in books or you can research it on the internet. But when you can actually go and touch it and see it and photograph it, that means a lot more to me because that's the kind of learner I am. Mm
2: -hmm.
5: And I think there's a lot of other people who must feel the same way. It's having that personal touch.
2: Hugh, mm. you, you were going to come in, I think. I was just going to say, I've, I've just finished a little project about w- William Frood, the um, the nautical engineer who did his first uh, the first ever testing tank experiments in, in Torquay, just up the road from where I am. And, um, and I met uh, one of Christine's colleagues at South Devon College, Matt Prowse, who's the head of marine engineering. And what he likes better than anything, and his students struggle with this, is taking them onto the River Dart, where William Froude did some of his experiments, and some of the South Devon College is looking out over there. And there's nothing he likes better than being in that place. And it's interesting about you're saying about your science. You know that
1: yeah.
2: him, he needs to be there at it rather than on the computer. And because he lives in this area where he can be, he finds that a very extraordinary. And I know that, you know, Dartmouth's not exactly in our geopark, but it is that, you know, that very extraordinary thing about, you know, meeting someone who says, yeah, I'm a marine engineer. What I like to do is be on the water and where better than here, you know? And so for me, that, there is that thing. And just to go back to Adam, you know, is it, you say your story's called The Reddening, Adam? Yes. And a red, you know, again, red is so important in this place. You know, we did the first project I think I did with some school kids was called Red Rocks Remain. And then we did the hat, you know, another little one was the house that fell into the sea off the red rocks. And then, you know, the red colour. And I think that, you know, some people find that, you know, whether it's red and becomes literature or whether it's red and becomes music, because usually you'd think it's red and it becomes visual um, is a is a very kind of powerful thing for for down here. And I know there are red rocks elsewhere, but it really does feel as if the red rocks here have a you know have a kind of story that people are able to tell in lots of different ways.
4: Yeah, my dad would have used terracotta for mm. his um, for his pots and what have you. And and what you're saying about the connection, people connecting. I mean, last year I curated an exhibition called um, Our Place in the Seven Heavens." which was directly about how the moon above the bay and the pull of the tides has shaped our landscape and for people to think about that in terms of art, but also in poetry. So we asked poets as well to respond to that theme. It was a really good exhibition. It was really, really, really interesting, the, the, um, the, the artwork, but also the poetry was, was fantastic that, that came out of that. Um, and although I say I don't um, paint the landscape, I do write about it. I do write about it in my poetry and I write about my experience as a child growing up in this in in this landscape and and, and what it's like to be a child on, living on the coast and having a father as an artist who was in himself he did paint he was an abstract painter um and he very much um his abstract um, works are embedded in 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 the coastline and the urban coastline which is interesting talking about an urban geopark as well, he very much using using the palette of a um, of of the coastal colours, but bringing them into in, into ur- urban ab- ab- abstract paintings. And um, so, yeah, I it, it I'm always I suppose because I grew up here and I went to school here, and I also work with very, quite um, very vulnerable young people living in the um, in the bay. I'm quite um, sad about the disconnection young people often have with the coast, even. Um, not going to the beach or not going to the moors and not that lovely connection that we have with the moors and the sea. Here, how they miss out on that. So I'm I've sort of slightly on a mission to reengage young people with their environment, but also to bring people like Nat, you know, in the, the community into the work that we produce. It's not just about us as artists, is it? Mm-hmm. Going, <laughs> it's about bringing people. In and saying, please show us your experiences. The, the exhibition I curated was take take taken to um, Torbay Hospital, and it was exhibited at Torbay Hospital. And then the uh, the nurses and the doctors there then responded to the pictures, and they wrote poetry about the pictures. And it was amazing. The poems that came out of that very much about their shift work, the what it was like to be travelling home with the moon. Of, and how the moon guided them to work yeah. and how it was there. It was
1: fantastic. It's fantastic. It's interesting. That, and that's what I'd like to kind of lead us on to. I mean, the, there's a lot of stuff now, but the green gym and the blue gym in terms of health and mental health and physical health. and fitness. Maybe, maybe from this conversation, it should be the red gym for, uh, for for Torbay. But I'm curious about this business, about what we would like art and the the part, as a, uh, a mechanism to do in that, in that area. What, what can art, particularly participatory art, and you I know there's the a big push in really making the Torbay and the, the Jit Parking you know, centrepiece of this. What can it do? What,
3: it kind of feels like it's... Um, I'm not sure that it's what can art do. It feels mm-hmm. like we're working... Some of the really fantastic conversations that are coming out of the situation we're in now does seem to be about, uh, art, you know... Art, Artists are part of the community. They're not kind of like existing alongside like another species. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's um, what of yeah. scientists think. You? <laughs> let's, get an, let's get an artist in for this, you know.
0: I was going to say the. Um, I guess connected to that, it's 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 one of the Bay's um, real assets, and it, it, it might sound silly, but you, I get a real sense here of being on a planet. And you don't often get that in urban environments you, that have been reskinned with roads and developments and architecture. But there are, there are places around here where you get a real sense that you are on a planet that has had a long story. And I think that offers, it, it's almost a, sometimes quite crushing the sudden sense of insignificance <laughs> that you get. But at the same time, it can be liberating in that you can escape almost the you know the internal preoccupations of your own mind. your horizon suddenly broadens and widens um, and you're in fresh air and you know a sudden plunge in the sea here can be electroshock therapy, a very positive one. <laughs> So it, it, it it's a place that can help people. I think um, for absolutely nothing. It doesn't cost anything.
1: Because I guess it's, it's I not thought about But I guess it's kind of a non-threatening wilderness. You know, if you go to Dartmoor or these great expanses, it's like that, there's something that can feel quite ominous and scary about that. But I guess what you're getting at is there's hints and glimpses of that that real wilderness, but in a kind of much more familiar setting. So you kind of think, "Oh, well, I'm part of something bigger," but yeah. not enough. An- Make you feel isolated,
2: Mm. and I mean, one example I've got is a a local teacher who's been teaching the whole time through COVID. You know, when they've had emergency workers, kids there and been school, and they've, she said, it's been completely amazing because they've had tiny classes, and the head teacher of this particular school, he said, she said the teachers you do what you like you've got these tiny classes so they've been following the leads of kids they've been doing so much stuff outside you know um and it's quite interesting it makes me think you know about what christine was saying you know that her revelation came from being taken to the coast with a geologist and shown what it is and there is that opportunity you know that actually all you need is one of those encounters don't you you just need someone to say let's go for a walk oh look there's a house that fell into the sea used to be there that's inspired that person, you know, that they don't ever forget that, you know, or, you, or someone else tells them something else. Or as um, Adam was saying, that kayak, I agree, but I like going to Anxiety's Cove because you can't see any other buildings. Mm-hmm. And yet you've walked from, you know, Kent's Cavern, which is in suburbia, you know, 10 minutes yeah. earlier. It's that kind of fantastic mm-hmm. space. Just you, but you need to be taken there by someone who's got, you know, whether it's an artist's eye or ge- geologist's eye, to be able to kind of encourage them into that space.
0: Mm. Connected to what Hugh just said, I mean, it was the it was joining the local canoe club mm. that really opened my eyes. There's um, a stretch in Brixham from Elbury Cove, kind of going round to Churston Cove and Fishcombe, where you have a series of rewilded quarries where they quarried limestone, I, I, I guess, in the 1800s, but they've rewilded now. If you see them from the sea particularly towards high tide you're almost level with the base of them i mean they look like ancient ruins yeah. from aztec or uh or or the incas or the or the Mayas or something and again the, there is no development there are no buildings in sight and it's this um yeah this yeah i always get this kind of feeling of awe it's like it's part fear and it's part wonder you, you this incredible mm. kind of natural rewilding of I guess industrial archaeology um, so it's it's yeah it's part of that story, part of that human story that's that's been continuing for a few thousand years but it's it's just an absolute drop in the ocean compared to what continued
4: the way I connected um. With, with as a child, one of the, one of the ways I connected the our school was made out of red, and sandstone bricks, and I remember running my fingers along it and finding fossils. Mm-hmm. Now I was a, I went to a convent and I wasn't even meant to, <laughs> fossils didn't really come in. <laughs> they don't exist. <laughs> they come into it. Well, in, in seven days, how did we get the fossil? <laughs> but um, uh, but but, that, but that's that's how I. My curiosity w- was really sparked by that. And drawing ordnance survey maps, we used to have to do that in school, um, uh, uh, the, the topographic bits and what have you. And, and that was very local. We had to d- 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 to do that looking at local maps. And I looked back recently at some really old maps um, and I did write a poem about it because uh, it just brought me back to that, to, to, to being a school girl and and that how... Everything, how they were educating you in this big way, but actually it came back to the to the local. And there's wonderful old, old names that, that um, looked on on the maps: Woodhewish and Buhay. Um, fantastic. There's old settlements.
1: Can we? We've been we've spent most of our time looking back as a geologist. That doesn't, you know, that that's not that surprise. But <laughs> what about looking forward? Um, where do you see this juxtaposition of? art and geology and, and particularly I'm thinking around participatory work because I know that's it. Where do you see this going, you know, over the months and kind of years ahead within the, the Torbay? What can people look forward to? Natalie, yeah, thanks.
3: Yeah, I, I feel like um, Torbay has, Torbay's relationship with participatory practice is really quite special. There's, there's so many people making really quite um, um, incredible work co-produced with communities um, and that's kind of something that we've really got become really rooted in and um again, in relation to performance based work and looking in relation to you know the environment and our communities, that also feels like something that is that you know we really kind of are striving ahead to kind of you know um, make those connections between community and place, and with everything happening around. Um, Covid nineteen it does feel like the communities are looking to outside and how we how how that sense of awe can help us that sense of you know how do you belong in a place and how do you kind of feel gratitude for your 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 place and where you are um, and equally with quite a lot of participatory in performing arts we're going to be in this kind of odd space where it's we are need, going to need to think about our outdoors. Um, and there's been some interesting conversations happening around how do we reclaim those the village, the natural amphitheatre as a performance space, the the village green, the, mm-hmm. uh, because actually all of the kind of elements of our system need to be thinking about kind of working together, probably, and and actually the landscape and that the natural environment feels like a place where they all connect. Yeah, it does feel like it's going to kind of um, notwithstanding all the challenges, and that I think Torbay's communities are going to face some real challenges, uh, as as many people are. But it does feel like there's a potentially there's a crack here. There's a there's a there's an opportunity to really think imaginatively and have to to you know, and that might be imaginatively, creatively. It might be you know applied to any number of situations. So I kind of feel that there's a. There's 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 real opportunities to be connecting our natural environment with creative practice, with people who are working in the arts professionally, people who are just finding their way in, um, and you know, hopefully, you know, responding to the incredible environment, but also using the environment as part of what we need—a solution, a you know, a conversation with it more.
4: I run a, um, a monthly poetry a- a night in um, Torquay which obviously <laughs> went completely in March, as all events like that did. Um, and, but I've started having conversations again with other poets about how we perform our work again um, and talking about performing it outside, um, although there was a lot of conversations about the seagulls drowning us out and <laughs> general, general noise that you get on, on on the coast. But we are starting to have those conversations again. We need to get back out there performing our Performing our work, um, it's always been in closed spaces, and that's not going to happen for a while. In the very, very closed spaces that I am, that I perform in.
1: I, I don't know. I was just curious. Writing is quite a solitary process, I suspect, and maybe horror writing even more solitary than, than most. But for you, that perspective, kind of looking forward. Yeah, I mean,
0: I I, I will continue to be kind of inspired. And, and stories will come from just living here and exploring. But, I mean, one thing that has really surprised me since I've lived here is, I mean, it's not just the natural beauty you have here um, and such variety. I mean, the woods, the beaches, the coves, the, the sea, um, and also the colour of the sea. Sometimes you 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 could be in Greek islands or something. And other times it can look like a naval battle from the Second World War. It looks like metal. But is is how few people know about Torbay outside of the area? I mean, I always feel like I'm walking on a film set. If I go to, you know, old way or I I glide past the quarries in Brixham or I'm exploring some caves or scrambling over something. I mean, just the amount of assets that the area has. And yet, I i mean, I, I didn't know anyone down here, really. But when people visit me um, and they see my photographs and social media and so forth, they always say, where's that? Is that in England? <laughs> you know, and I've taken people on walks. They're just astonished that they're even in the British Isles. So... That, that filmic, almost cinematic quality that the area has, if that could somehow be projected as as habits are changing now, you know, how many airlines will survive? or people still be going on holiday abroad? If people are going to have to look domestically for places to visit and have holidays, I'm, I can't think of many places better than Tor Bay. or or South Devon, and it's so easy to get to as well, but train links, motorway links. North Devon, spectacular, but it's harder. The efforts people go to to go to Cornwall and sit in traffic jams, They, they glide past Torbay and they'll say to me, oh, I've seen Torbay on a road sign, but I've never actually visited. So I don't know, collectively, film, music, sculpture, art, um perhaps we kind of boost the signal and, and, and make it resonate more?
1: That's a great place to finish because I've, I've, we're, we're on the air, really, but also because of the notion of you know, boosting the signal. I mean, I, in, in many respects, if there's one thing the UNESCO brand does is it attempts to boost mm-hmm. the signal. And I guess the whole point of the Geopark is that idea of this USP that we can help to do that. So I'd like to thank everyone for, for leading us through that. It's been fascinating. So Christine, Hugh, Adam, Becky and Natalie, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much Thank for being with this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks.
4: The ritual magic of drawing ordnance survey contours. Bounce of black ink caught in the nib. Small vibration of a scratch shakes it down around parallel lines and tracks making maps like ritual magic the lanes and old names conjured back the contours of a farm hill spreads like a rippled cow pat to the water's edge the lines drawn in black ink transcribes ancient topography topsoil worn ancient stones ritual magic lane in hexagrams Signs pointing to a colony, Boo Hoodown, Who Wood Hewish, the excavated, copper-plated old names, some written out to sea, flung from the flicked nib, the bounce rebounding on the coastal boundaries. A contour is only seen from above, to illustrate the undulating hills flat, not what stands straight, like travellers livestock or pilgrims so i catch them back scratch back their likeness with symbols between the black parallel lines during the ritual magic of drawing ordnance survey contours on maps